hear the word of the Lord for us this morning. On that day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with him in the boat just as he was. And the other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose. The waves were breaking into the boat, so the boat was already filling. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. They woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And Jesus said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who is this then, that even the wind and the seas obey him? And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Dear Lord, grant to us an understanding of your word now, we pray. Open our hearts that we might be attuned to your word so that we might forever live that free life that is ours in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated, if you would, and grab your Bibles. Go to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, right? The last section in Mark chapter 4 as we work through the text together. Some of you have had the experience of being with a friend, and uh, imagine for a second that it's somebody that you respect spiritually, uh, perhaps a spiritual mentor of some sort. It's somebody that you can look up to um, and who has helped and shaped and guided your life. And as you are talking, you're discussing, say, a traumatic experience or a trauma that you are going through, a difficulty, a struggle, a trial, something like that. And they very quickly share something that you know is right on the button. It is an insight, a spiritual encouragement that you need and that you quickly appreciate. Uh, you need to trust. You need to recognize that all things are in God's hands. We need to approach the Lord more and pray for him more openly. We need to open our hearts more and more to the Lord. They say something early on that you've got this trial challenge going on in your life, and they speak right to it. And you know that they have, even at the moment you sense that they have, but they said it so quickly. They came to that truth so abruptly that you kind of wish that they would have struggled with it a little bit, that they would have shared a little bit more in the struggle that you're going through, in the, in the trauma that you're going through. It's not that you doubt the wisdom of what they say. They, what they said was absolutely right. But there's a, a certain spot where you're like, I wish that you hadn't have come to that so quickly that you would have sat in the struggle, in the trauma with me a little bit before you jumped and quickly gave what is the right answer. We have a passage of scripture today that is very famous. I read a couple things over this week uh, that argued that this would have been the most famous passage of Jesus' actions, most famous thing in which he did, uh, aside from obviously the cross and the resurrection. So here we have perhaps one of the most key experiences that Jesus has done, and it is an incredibly meaningful one for us, and one where the application jumps right to mind. And it is true, and we have to anchor this application deep into our hearts, the belief, the understanding that Jesus can calm the turmoil of your life. There's nobody that goes through life 
without turmoil, without struggle, without chaos sweeping around us, without the wind and the waves sweeping over us or feeling like we're being swept over consistently. And one of the very straightforward pieces of application of this text is one that we have to grab a hold of and believe and understand is absolutely true, that God can calm and he will calm those times of turmoil in your life. It's a beautiful promise. It's an appropriate application of this text, and we should grab a hold of that. But not so quickly. I I don't want us to grab to the easy piece of application here so fast that we miss the human drama that's going on here, but even more than just the human drama, that there's maybe a richer deeper way even to understand this text. And if we simply grab a hold of the idea, true though it is, that our Lord is eager to calm the seas of your life and he can bring peace and tranquility into your life, as true as that is, I don't want us to miss perhaps what has captured the biblical author because I think he has something slightly different in mind. So if you have your Bibles, we're just going to walk our way through this text, hopefully to highlight a little bit of what is happening for the disciples so that we can see, is there another application of this passage? Should we see more than that beautiful reality that Jesus does calm the fears in our lives? But is there another thing here? Passage begins on that day when evening had come, on that day Um, This is a connection to the things that had happened beforehand, and this has some relevance to what happens later in the story. So you really have to read all of chapter 4, and in truth, chapter 4 probably bleeds into chapter 3. The events of this single day go all the way back to Jesus being confronted by his own family about uh, where are you and what are you doing and those kind of things. And then Jesus launches into that long discussion of the parables and takes his disciples aside and talks about the value of parables and the reason for parables. This has been a big day. This has been a long day. And so when evening came, Jesus says to them, let's go to the other side. They're at the Sea of Galilee. Jesus frequently crosses the Sea of Galilee. It's one of the key action points of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Um, My guess is if we were more familiar with the geography of Galilee and where the cities were and that kind of stuff, it makes some sense. But it also seems to be that a lot of the time that Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee when he is confronted, overwhelmed by those crowds. Remember, we've talked about the crowds. If you've been here before, when we've been talking about the book of Mark, we know that Mark uses the crowds uh, kind of as a foil for true faith. The crowds bump into Jesus, and obviously the crowds are important, and Jesus is sharing the gospel with the crowds. But at the same time, the crowds kind of interfere with the work in which Jesus is trying to do so often. So he tends to leave the crowd. And sure enough, if you look here on leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. Do you see that phrase at the end there, just as he was? When I first saw that, I thought maybe that there was something insightful going on there. Uh, You know, they, they took Jesus just as he was. And I was trying to figure out what that means. I think what that means is just if you go back to chapter 4, Jesus has gotten into a boat at the beginning of chapter 4 in order to preach. And I think all it means is that they got into the boat with Jesus. So not a great insight, but they got into the boat with Jesus as he was, and they went across to the other side. Verse 34, and it, uh, sorry, verse 37, 
And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. This is a, a boat, would have been about 30 feet long or so, and so you kind of get an idea. It's not a large boat, but it's capable size, and they're on the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Sea of Galilee, just for some perspective here, it's about 13 miles long by about 8 miles wide. So if you're not into mileage really easily, if you just imagine a map of Pittsburgh, that's about the size of Pittsburgh, the city and the surrounding areas. So imagine all of that a lake, uh, and you kind of have the Sea of Galilee, the size of the Sea of Galilee. So it's not a vast lake, it's not huge, but it's fairly good-sized. And the geography of the Sea of Galilee happens to be such that there's a wind tunnel that runs right down the, the guts of the Sea of Galilee. So there's mountains on either side, and there's cool air in the mountains in the north, and there's hot air down at the Sea of Galilee itself, which is actually under sea level. It's that low. And so there's wind motion. So squalls, sudden squalls, Pretty serious squalls, rainstorms, windstorms, can happen kind of very quickly on the Sea of Galilee. If you're used to the Sea of Galilee, if you live there, if you've been making your living on the Sea of Galilee, then storms are not that unusual. You're kind of used to seeing them. And of course, the fishermen here, the disciples, number of Jesus' disciples, were indeed Galilean fishermen. So they were used to the storms. It wasn't something that was unexpected, in other words. Having said that, this is clearly a wicked storm. This one is really bad, and they try to capture that by saying the boat was already filling. In other words, the boat's already swamping. The storm has been going on so long that the boat's already taken on water. Things are already looking really bleak at this point. Now, the disciples... Are, some of them, at least, are fishermen. They're used to this lake. They are used to being on boats. You need to keep that in mind as we move forward here. The disciples, at least some of them, know what's going on. And nevertheless, they are frightened. The disciples are scared, and so they find Jesus in the stern in verse 38. Jesus was in the stern. That's the back part of the boat. Um, in the Sea of Galilee, largely the boats were open uh, in other words, they weren't, there wasn't a deck over top of them, except maybe back in the stern would be the only spot where there'd be a little deck. And so Jesus, you can picture him kind of sleeping on a cushion underneath the, uh, the stern there. And why is he asleep? Well, I, there's some insight here to be gained. We'll look at it in a few minutes. But at least part of the reason why he's asleep is that he's exhausted. Uh, one of the things that the scriptures identify very clearly for us is the very real humanity of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was not a superman. He was a man. He was a human being, and he has been teaching. He has been working all day long. He's exhausted, and so he gets into the boat, and he's sleeping. He's laying there sleeping, and the disciples come to him. They wake him, and they say to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And I want you to listen to what they say there. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? In other words, there's a bit of a rebuke. There's a little bit of a reproach here in which they approach Jesus. And notice what the assumption is of the disciples. The assumption of the disciples are, if you cared for us, 
Jesus, if you cared for us, this difficulty would not be going on. Right? If you cared for it, don't you care that we're perishing? If you cared, we wouldn't have this difficulty. We wouldn't be struggling like we are. Now, I highlight that because that is so picturesque, that's so characteristic of our lives as disciples. We are under the misapprehension, the mistaken belief that if God really cared for us, he's going to keep anything bad from ever happening to us. There's not a Christian in this life that lives that world. We all live in a wholly different world, a different world where Jesus himself, loved by his Father, was nevertheless led to the cross. If difficulty comes to our Lord and Savior in the midst of the love of the Father, is there any surprise that difficulty will come to us because of the love of God for us? Of course, Jesus knows something that we don't always recognize and acknowledge, and that is that very often the suffering that we go through is exactly the means by which our Lord uses to strengthen our faith. And that's why this text brings in the notion of faith, because the point of what Jesus is identifying here for the disciples is it's not a lack of love, it is a desire for you to grow in your faith. It is a desire for you to be a better, new human being, man or woman of God. And this is what confronts all of us when we sit there and say very quietly to ourselves because we know not to say it out loud. But if God really loved me, maybe my spouse wouldn't be treating me this way. Maybe school wouldn't be so frustrating. Maybe work wouldn't be so difficult. Maybe my family wouldn't be in such chaos all the time. And yet, this passage, along with the whole rest of the testimony of Scripture and the testimony of our Christian lives, shows us that it is very often because of the struggles and the challenges and the difficulties that we go through that God is demonstrating his love and care for us because he is interested in developing that faith within us. So they say to him, don't you care that we are perishing? Their implication being, if we're suffering, you don't care for us. And that's clearly not Jesus' expectation because what happens in verse 39 there, Jesus awoke and he rebukes the wind and says to the sea, peace, be still. He rebukes the wind and says to the sea, peace, be still. Now, assuming that Jesus is speaking Aramaic, uh, which would have been the common language in which he would have used at that time, when he said peace, he would have said shalom or some version of shalom, shalom. And for those of you who are aware, shalom is that rich term in the scriptures that means so much more than just peace, absence of waves, absence of wind. It means be that, do that, become that which is in harmony with our God. Become that way in which is in harmony with our God. And that's what the Lord does in the turmoil and the struggles and the challenges that you confront each and every day the Lord's voice is screaming in the background, peace be still. This is in conformity with God's desire and will and love for you. He rebukes 
the wind, and he says to the waves, peace be still, and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Do you see the great calm there at the end? The great calm. It, this is the, the image that you're supposed to picture is that, you know, the waves, everything is, is, is chaos. By the way, Ma- Matthew, in talking about the same passage in the Gospel of Matthew, he describes the windstorm as an earthquake. Uh, so that's a word that he uses because they're trying to picture the violent nature of what's happening that's so bad that swamping a boat that is built to exist on the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus says, peace be still, and the image is that immediately everything goes completely still. The wind stops immediately, but the waves don't begin to settle down. Everything becomes, the, the great calm there is so flat that you can, like a mirror, the water becomes like a mirror, you can see your image in it. Everything becomes perfectly calm and flat at this point. And Jesus turns then to his disciples. I love the, the, um, the order of things here. They wake Jesus up and say, don't you care that we're drowning? And Jesus doesn't turn to them and say, of course I care. How, what do you, how can you ask such a thing? He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, hey guys, watch this. Or just bail harder. Or, you know, hey, this is part of life. We'll get through it. He doesn't say any of those things. First he addresses the sea and the wind. And then he turns to his disciples. And listen to what he says here. He says to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Now, if you're like me, um, most of the time when you're reading in the, the Gospels and you read a story about the disciples, you spend most of your time thinking, these idiots. Um, you know, uh, I, I mean, honestly, the disciples are always bungling it. And most of the time, we're smart. Now, we, you know, maybe it's because we know the end of the story, but we're sitting there thinking, oh, Peter, once again, sticking your foot in your mouth. You know, I mean, the, the disciples are always kind of bungling it. And I'd be very surprised if you don't read it and have that expression of, your, of the disciples most of the time. I'm really impressed because I always do. I always think, you know, wow, you're really goofing. Except when I get to this text. When I get to this text, I, I'm really sympathetic with the disciples. They're in the middle of a lake. They're just on the edge of drowning. They're professional fishermen, some of them are, and yet they know that the boat's about to go down. They know how bad it really is. And Jesus is sleeping. He's not helping, he's not doing anything. And then when he does do something, they turn around, Jesus turns around and says, where is your faith? Why are you afraid? And this connects very clearly with the idea that fear and faith push us in opposite directions. Fear has pushed the disciples into asking a question, into into a crisis of their faith. Fear has brought them to a spot where they doubt the love of Jesus for them. And he instead holds forward faith. And he says, faith sets up something differently. Why was Jesus asleep on the couch cushion? He was exhausted, but he had faith. Jesus had faith in the plans of the Father. He knew of the love of God the Father, 
and the faith that he had in the plans of God the Father, so he was able to sleep. Of course, this is what brings forward that quick application passage of this passage into our minds that we should have. Because it is true. Our Lord is able and eager to express his love and care for you by calming the seas, by calming the storm of your life. That is what our Lord does, and you need to embrace it. But there's so much more in this passage, brought forward most clearly for us by verse 41. Again, if you have your Bible, verse 41, and the disciples were, fear, were filled with great fear. Okay, now wait a minute. They've been terrified this whole time. They've been so scared that they accuse Jesus of not caring and loving for them. They are so worried about what's happening here that they wake up their, their Lord, their teacher, master, when they know that he's exhausted, and yet they're so scared that they wake him up. And yet now, after everything has become calm, everything, everything has become flat and patient, now suddenly they are filled with great fear. The point of this text is not to talk about your life and the trauma in which you go through. The point of the text is not to talk about the difficulties in my life and what the Lord can do for my life. The point of this passage is to orient our faith towards the object of faith, Jesus Christ. They are suddenly now filled with great fear and so that they look to one another and they say, and here's the rhetorical question, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Notice that Mark doesn't answer the question. Jesus, the disciples don't answer the question because the answer to the question is self-evident. This is the Son of God. This is the King who has come into his kingdom. This is the one to whom we put our lives and our faith and our trust and all that we have into him. Because, why? All right, early on in the text, we have already seen Jesus is dominant over the spiritual forces in this world. He has chased out demons. He has chased away all of the evil that's in this world. He has done all great things in terms of his abilities to conquer uh, satanic forces that are in this world. Okay, he's also showed himself able to correct disease and infirmary and all that kind of stuff. He's victorious over all of those things. The sea to an ancient Israelite is not just a place where the water is and that kind of stuff. The sea, the water as a whole, is a picture of the chaos. It's an element of, of uncontrolledness. It's, it's evil. It's the realm of wickedness and evil. It's where the Leviathan lives. It's where uh, the, the Israelites are struggling consistently with their goodness and livelihood over the sea that conquers and traumatizes the nation so badly all the time. The sea is something that is, this is why in Revelation, in the kingdom that has come, it is pictured as having no sea, not because there's something wrong with the water, 
but because the water itself symbolizes evil and wickedness. And Jesus, in saying, peace, be still, is demonstrating to his disciples not just that he controls the spiritual forces, not just that he controls the natural world around us, but that he controls the spiritual forces, the wickedness, the evil, all of that is in his control and in his hands. And so when the disciples see what Jesus did, they're not marveling just at the fact that he exercises power over nature. nature. They're marveling that he's exercising power even over wickedness and sin. And I think that the biblical reader that takes time to read the scriptures can pick up on this. Because this passage is clearly parallel to an Old Testament passage. In Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, one who is greater than Jonah is here. And if you're familiar with the story of Jonah, this is before the swallowed by the fish thing. Jonah is in a boat where there's a great windstorm and it is threatening to break up and Jonah is asleep in the boat and Jonah is awoken by the other people in the boat who are fearful that they are going to drown and Jonah, through Jonah's actions, there becomes this great calm and a peace that then immediately evokes faith out of the other people in the boat and a response of joy into their expression of Lord. It is everything that is here except in the book of Jonah, for that calm to happen, Jonah had to sacrifice his life. He had to be thrown into the sea. And I believe that the astute biblical reader sees what Jesus is doing here and the disciples immediately make the connection. This is like Jonah. And we see that Jonah calmed the seas through the gift of his own life. And this is an indication of what Jesus is confronting and will confront in his life as well. His power, his control, his dominance over the sin and the brokenness of this world will come at the expense of his own life. Now, the quick the quick and easy and appropriate application of this passage absolutely is the remembrance, is holding passionately to that idea that our Lord will calm the seas of your life. That he promises and absolutely he will do and does every day for you so that that faith might develop and grow in your life. And it's right for us to say to one another, the Lord will calm the sea, the turmoil of your life. But this passage has a deeper, a richer application. It points to who will calm the seas in your, uh, in your, your life. Who will oversee the trauma that faces you every day? It is the one who has control over the forces of nature. The one who has control over disease and injury is the one who has control over the demonic forces in this world. And it's the one who ultimately has victory over the dominion of sin and wickedness in your life. That's 
who has struck the disciples. The disciples don't walk away and say, wow, because of our experience on this boat, I have great confidence that Jesus will make things nice and smooth and peaceful for me through the rest of my life. Instead, they walk away with, who is this God? Who is this Lord? That's the question that confronts every one of us each and every day. Let's pray together. Lord in heaven, we do thank you again for blessing us with the scriptures that speak so powerfully into our lives. Lord, we would ask that you would calm our hearts, that you would calm the trauma that is in our lives, that you would open us more and more to the reality that we worship a Lord and Savior who is so amazing and so good and who does such great and powerful things that we can have that great confidence and trust in you to place our lives fully in your hands in the midst of any turmoil that is happening in our lives as we worship and we adore you, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.